How to show up with Coca-Cola energy. You're tired and you're thinking of canceling on your friends. Don't do it! Every time you cancel on a friend, a unicorn loses its horn and becomes a regular horse. Do you really want that on your conscience? Instead, grab an ice-cold can of Coca-Cola energy with delicious Coke taste and reinvigorating energy. Keep the unicorns alive! Show up every day with Coca-Cola energy. Energy you want, taste you love. Ian Milheiser, Ian's a senior constitutional policy analyst at the Center for American Progress and the editor of Think Progress Justice, author of Injustices, the Supreme Court's nearly unbroken history of comforting the comfortable and afflicting the afflicted. Uh, thank you for joining us, uh, Ian. Uh, Ian has written a great piece, Justice Ginsburg hands surprise victory to consumers over big business. Ian, good afternoon. Welcome, welcome back, and Happy New Year. Oh, it's great, it's great to be back. Uh, I'm looking forward to a, a very snowy weekend coming up. Ah, well, I'm in Southern California right now where it's 65 degrees and sunny, so pfft, no, I'm just joking. I hate <laughs> you so much right now. <laughs> As I say to my kids, Ian, hate is such a strong word. Um, any, anyway, uh, your piece, Justice Ginsburg, hands surprise victory to consumers over big business. You know what I love? This is a broad's broad. I mean, this woman is still going strong despite illness. Yeah. I mean, and you know what? I really think she's hanging on <laughs> to, to make sure a Democrat becomes president before she uh, resigns or, or otherwise. Um, you know, Let's talk about Campbell Ewald versus Gomez. Not everybody may be familiar with this case, so tell folks a bit about it. Yeah, I mean, this was a really important case that I I had thought up until yesterday was going to go very badly. It it, it basically deals with whether or not a company can – has virtually uncheckable ability to cheat people out of money so long as they do it a few dollars at a time. Um, so, like, if you, if you know, your cell phone company or bank or someone like that cheats you out of fifty dollars or a hundred dollars or even a thousand dollars, you're probably not going to sue. And the reason you're probably not going to sue is because it's a huge hassle, and the lawyer that you're going to hire is going to cost you more than you stand to get from the lawsuit anyway. And so the mechanism that the law uses in order to make sure that those cases still get brought and those companies are still held accountable is a class action lawsuit where a bunch of people join together in one lawsuit and suddenly when you pull them all together, there's a lot of money at stake and get a really good lawyer to, to take the case. This was really a thinly veiled effort to kill the class action. Um, and the good news is that six of the nine justices said no way. So this effort um, to make it very, very easy for companies to take your money just so long as they do it a few bucks at a time um, did not succeed in the Supreme Court. Why do you think this is – because, I, I mean, right now, um, you know, consumers, big business – are big news and there are big right. concerns of voters, especially, you know, those on the left and supporters of Bernie Sanders. And we hear kind of, you know, stuff like this all the time uh, coming out of the mouth of Senator Sanders. So why do you think the Campbell Ewald versus Gomez hasn't had more hype and more press? Does the Donalds just um, overshadow all of that? Yeah, I mean, certainly, like, it's hard to take take your eyes off the big, shiny thing that is Donald Trump right now. Um, but this is also a huge term. I mean, you've got a, a major abortion case. You've got a major birth control case. You've got a big affirmative action case. You've got um, a huge redistricting case. Um, you've got a huge case dealing with whether or not, uh, you know, whether or not public sector unions are going to be gutted. Um, so this is a major, major term we've got right now. And I, I think the problem is that there's so much going on right now 
that it, it, people, you know, there are a lot of really important things that just aren't getting noticed because it's hard to pay attention to everything that's happened. And uh, with uh, regard to this case, so that people understand, when we're talking about the defendants being backed by powerful business interest groups, we're talking biggies like the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. And the idea of Justice Ginsburg handing it to the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, uh, it makes me tingle just a bit, Ian. Yeah, I mean, it it was delightful. I mean, I'm glad that we got the ruling that we did. I mean, and I should say that there is one caveat to to both of our enthusiasm, which is that basically what this opinion did was keep things exactly the same. I mean, you know, the problem with having the very conservative um, Supreme Court that we have is, like, you know, liberals don't lose everything in the Supreme Court. You you know, last term, there were a lot of cases that, that, that I was very happy with. But... Uh, with the exception of gay rights, where the Supreme Court has been making some real progress, on pretty much every issue, a case gets brought, and either things are going to stay exactly the same or they're going to get worse. You, you know, it's very rare that a case gets brought to the Supreme Court and they decide it, and you're left thinking, well, the world's now a much better place because of that. You know, you know when we win, typically what a win means is that things could have gotten terrible, and instead they won't get terrible. And, and, so let's ta- and let's talk about yeah. what terrible would have meant. I think it's very good for people to understand yeah. the bullet that we've dodged in a sense. Um, this would have significantly altered the balance of power between large corporations and their customers and workers as well, right? Right. Yeah. So, so let, let's say uh, you know, let's say that your cell phone company decides that it wants to pull off a scam that you know, they're going to overcharge every single one of their customers $100. So they've got a million customers, so now they get $100 million out, out, out of this scam. Um, if you want to bring a class action lawsuit against your cell phone company, the way that it works is that you'll sign on to be the plaintiff, and your lawyers will file a brief where they'll say, like, you're what's called the named plaintiff suing, um, the cell phone company, and you might, you'll probably say in your complaint that you intend to bring this as a class action, but it won't actually, it's called certification. It won't be certified as a class action until much later in the proceeding. And, and until that certification happens, what these companies were claiming was that they can make your case go away by essentially buying you off. They can say to you, I want to make this one million, this $100 million loss to go away. Your injury, you personally were only injured to the tune of $100. So here's a nice, crisp $100 bill. And now that I've offered you this, you don't even have to take it. Now that I've offered this to you, you have to go away. That was their legal theory. And when you go away, you have to take the other um, over 99 million people or, or you know, over 900,000 people with you. That was their theory. That was their theory, that they can buy off one person. That person has to take the payoff, more or less. And then once they bought off that person, the entire class action lawsuit goes away. And that's really the end of the class action if the Supreme Court says that that's okay. Absolutely. Let's take some calls. 888-6-LESLIE, 888-653-7543. Helen's in Ithaca, New York, line two, listening on our great affiliate there. Helen, good afternoon. Question or comment for Ian? Oh, good afternoon. I actually have in my hands um, Ian Millizer. Did I pronounce the last name correctly? Um, uh, Millizer, yes. Injustices. Okay. I wanted to 
see if you wanted to express any opinion about our Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, John Roberts. Um, mm -hmm. He did a lot of uh, he had a lot of involvement in having um, Bush be elected. Um, he was uh, he was working for Rehnquist at the time, and I have just I've got a stack of books I'm supposed to be reading, and I perused your your book. I haven't totally read your book, so I'm you know I apologize for. Being <laughs> I think it's awesome that somebody calls in and says, um, Ian Milheiser, is that how I say your name? I'm holding your book in my hand. Ian, come on. You got a little swing on that. Admit it. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I did. Available where all books are sold. Amazon. And this is, and just for the record, Helen, you are not Ian's mom, correct? <laughs> no, no. And it says this, the subtitle is The Supreme Court's History of Comforting the Comfortable and Afflicting the Afflicted. Uh, go go ahead, Ellen. Uh, continue with uh, your your uh, your question, your comment, and Ian, your response. All right. How how would uh, if Ian would like to comment on all right uh, the the Warren Court? All right, that was a court that was headed by a Republican who didn't even go to law school, you know, and that that was a very progressive court, which some people say was they were too active. I think this court is even more active. And in like well, according to my uh, ideology, in a, a negative way, you know. So. Ian, yeah, I mean, I, I think that the activism of the Warren Court. I mean, the Warren Court, or, or, Chief Justice Earl Warren. I, I thought he, I thought he went to Berkeley Law, but but regardless of, of his uh, background, uh, he was Chief Justice for most of the fifties and the sixties. And I, I think that the activism, I mean, there are some decisions of that era that I think went too far or that rested on, you know, legal reasoning I find questionable. But I think the extent of their activism is exaggerated. You know, the, one of the major projects of the Warren Court was just saying that, oh, yeah, that part of the Constitution that says you're not allowed to discriminate, that actually means what it says. You know, another big project was saying was the one versus one vote project, saying that my vote counts exactly as much as someone three counties away. Um, you know, another big project was making sure that the protections for criminal justice that are actually explicitly written into the Constitution were enforced. So I think that people think of them as an activist court largely because, and this is what I discuss at length in my book, for so much of American history, the Supreme Court really didn't pay much attention to what was actually in the Constitution. And there are all these rights in there that had been ignored for a long time. What scares me about the court that we have now is that, you know, we, for so much of our history, we, the Supreme Court was a really malicious force. They ignored a lot of what was actually in the Constitution. It did a lot to help the, the rich and the powerful. And I think that the court we have now is returning back to that norm. Um, and that's very frightening. Now, you know, Chief Justice Roberts wants to take us there uh, fairly rapidly, but not extraordinarily rapidly. You know, I think Justice Thomas would take us there tomorrow if he could. Um, so there's some disagreement, I think, amongst the justices about how fast this hand basket, this hand basket we're traveling in should, should go. Um, but they seem to be wanting to take us back in time to an era that was not very pleasant. 
We're going to take uh, – Helen, uh, thank you uh, for your call. We're going to take a break. We're up against a break right here. Ian, hang tight. We'll come back to you. More calls. If you're holding, hang tight. You want to join us, 888-6LESLIE, 888-653-7543. Our guest is Ian Milheiser, Senior Constitutional Policy Analyst at the Center for American Progress and editor of Think Progress Justice. He's author of Injustices, as you heard, in Helen's hand, the Supreme Court's nearly unbroken history of comforting the comfortable and afflicting the afflicted. Leslie Marshall, when the truth matters. Give her a call now at 888-6-LESLIE. Progress, editor of Think Progress, Justice, author of Injustices, the Supreme Court's nearly unbroken history of comforting the comfortable and afflicting the afflicted. Thank you, Ian, for holding. Welcome back. Let's take some more calls, and we go to Washington with Paul on line three. Paul's listening on Progressive Voices. Paul, good afternoon. Thank you for joining us. Question or comment for our guest, Ian Milheiser. Oh, yeah. Hi, Leslie, and uh, pleasure to speak with you, Ian. Uh, I'm not a lawyer, but Supreme Court is uh, one of my real favorite topics. Um, so I've, I've read your book three times, by the way. So, oh, great. Um, uh, just Ian, Ian, quick... Hey, guys, I just want you to know, I did not hire Helen or Paul to call, but, Ian, <laughs> I will take my cut now, okay? No, just joking. Yeah, okay. Yeah, well, I, my, my, my agent is very happy with the callers that he, that he arranged for Oh, this good. Call. Maybe he'll sit, with, sit down with me when I plan on writing a book. What do you think? <laughs> <laughs> well, let me start. Let's for a start here. I, I would list my three favorite best. Uh, chief justices of the Supreme Court would be, and see if you agree. And uh, I, of course, John Marshall would have to be the top agreement of on the top of the list. Earl Warren and Charles Evans Hughes. What do you think of that top three? Well, I mean, you certainly picked three like very historically significant justices. I, I mean, Marshall built the court into the significant institution that 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 it now is, and I think that you know Hughes and Warren led the nation through the two most important transformations of how we conceptualize our Constitution. So Warren, like I said before, really breathed life into the notion that when the Constitution says we're all equal, it actually means that. Um, And before that project would happen, um, Hughes presided over the court during the era where where it basically stopped being an agent of the very rich and the very powerful, and stop saying that we couldn't have things like minimum wage laws or child labor laws or other you know things that would be very basic and essential right now. Um, now the scary thing is that what I hear more and more from my friends on the right. I didn't hear this you know ten years ago. They were all talking about judicial restraint. Now, like the arguments that were used in the 1930s to stop the New Deal, the arguments that were used to block um, the child labor laws, I mean, the arguments that were used to block the child labor laws are very similar to the arguments that were used just a few years ago to try to stop Obamacare. Right, exactly. True. Yeah, so we're seeing history repeat itself. And, you know, depending on what happens in this election, 
you know, if you have someone very conservative appointing the next slate of justices, you could see, a, you know, a Supreme Court that wants to take take back the last 80 years of American history. Well, it, you mentioned the the, uh, um, the child labor laws, like in Dagenhart, where the analysis was, well, if we outlawed child labor, the Congress could outlaw all labor. And that's, right. similar, that's similar to what Scalia said about the Affordable Care Act. Well, if I can require you to buy health insurance, I might be able to require you to buy broccoli. I mean, it's almost right. I laughed when I read that part in, the, in your book, but uh, the wonky part here, let me ask you about the, the 19th century and the, the philosophies of uh, guys like uh, Simeon Baldwin and Christopher Tiedemann, who were arguing apparently that um, the, com- or the uh, dem- democratic majorities were a threat to the common law. Right. And we're seeing now, I think, this sort of scholarship in the 20, late 20th century about guns. Is that, is that an apt analogy? I, I mean, you, it, I think it's certainly true that, like, the history of conservatism in much of American history is an anti-democratic history. So, you know, what you had, the, argu- the, the arguments that developed in the 19th century were, let's take the vaguest parts of the Constitution and let's try to use those in order to prevent sure. legislators from doing their job, in order to prevent them from, from changing the law. Um, I mean, I, I think that the gun groups now, now, I disagree with their interpretation of the Second Amendment, but they're on stronger ground because the Second Amendment is actually in the Constitution and we're having a fight over what those words mean. You know, what's so scary about what happened in the 19th century and what some of my libertarian friends are arguing us for, for us to do all over again is frequently they were saying, and they were quite explicit about this, that a wall should be struck down that benefits workers or that, or that hurt business, even though there's nothing that they can point to in the Constitution which specifically says that that's unconstitutional. Right. Well, I wish we had I wish we had an hour here, but I know Leslie has other callers. So. Yeah, absolutely. Right, well, thanks so much, for, and thanks for reading my book. You bet. <laughs> thanks for reading. Thanks for writing it. <laughs> <laughs> and read it more than once. Wow. Three times. Yeah, I mean, I don't even think the Bible gets three times read. What do you think, Ian? <laughs> I, I, I can number all the verses if you want, and then people, it would be easy to reference them. When we look at the uh, Campbell Ewald case that sought to allow mm-hmm. class action defendants to sabotage uh, these types of lawsuits, and, and you had talked in your piece about typically such lawsuits begin with a single plaintiff, a small group of plaintiffs file a complaint right. uh, laying out their allegations. What going forward do you think uh, this means for consumers and with regard to um, a big business and their power mm-hmm. overreach, if you will, um, especially when you have entities like the U.S. Chamber of Commerce that were shut right. down on this? Well, I think, I mean, this is an important victory. You know, it, it leaves some important protections in, in place. But, like, it is important to understand that this victory comes against the background of a line of major defeats. Uh, so, you know, just to give you, like, a sense of how effective groups like the Chamber have been in arguing for corporate immunity against the law, in the 1980s, the Supreme Court started giving companies more and more power to put what are called forced arbitration clauses in, in, in contracts. So, like, if you go look up your cell phone contract right now, it'll probably have one of these forced arbitration clauses in it. And, and what that clause says is it says that 
if um, you, it, it says that if you have a dispute with your cell phone company or whoever the company is that you're dealing with, you don't get to go to a real court. You've got to go to a privatized court system, and often the arbitrator is picked by the company that you're, that you're trying to sue. Um, so that was the first wave of this. You know, the second wave of this is around the mid-2000s. The Supreme Court said that these things could be stuck in uh, employment contracts. Um, and so all of a sudden, uh, it's also, I think it was actually the mid-90s, they said it could be stuck in employment contracts. So now your boss can say, you have to sign away your right to sue us if we break the law in a real court. And if you don't sign that right away, you're fired. That's what can happen now. And okay. the third wave... Yeah, go ahead, go ahead, Ian, sir. Yeah, and then the third wave is much more recently, they said that they could include a no-class action provision in, in this arbitration clause. So now you don't get to go to a real court. Um, you have to go to a privatized court. Often the company you're suing winds up getting to pick who the arbitrator is, and you can't bring a class action. Uh, that, and and that's crazy. Court- I, Ian, we are out of time, but I want to have you back. Andrew, can we have him back again? I want to talk about how the Supreme Court could affect uh, the 2016 outcome.